This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals and the series at present in hand is uh, given the title What is Man? This is number three of that series. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and we'll read together Philippians chapter 2 and 3. In our former study of this subject, <coughs> What is Man? We were considering particularly chapter 1 of the book of Genesis. We just drew attention that we mustn't construe chapter 2 as being some separate creation of dealing with some other man named Adam. It is just an expansion, giving more details and giving it from another point of view. In chapter 1, it is the purpose of God. Let us make man after the likeness, in the likeness of our image. Let him have dominion. And there, male and female are represented as being created at the same time and without any further definition. When we come to chapter 2, instead of it being uh, just at the end of six days, special creation, getting the earth ready for man, we have very little said with regard to the six days, except that it does refer to the fact in verse 5, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. Have you ever heard the old problem, which came first, the hen or the egg? Well, you just refer them to Genesis 2, verse 5. You see, it's anticipated and answered. And it says in verse 7, which is the verse which will occupy a good deal of our attention, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so we have the words, he was created, verse 27 of chapter 1, he was made, created and made, and now we have the word formed. It's interesting to know that the word formed is used of the work of a potter. Not, of course, we've got to take it so literally, uh, but there is also the thought, not merely of saying, he spake and it was done. When God called light out of darkness, that's all that he had to do. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the dry land appear, and it did. But when it came to man, there's a pause, let us. And now, in the second story, the Lord God formed. There was a sort of personal touch. Well, now it's evident from the teaching of Scripture afterwards that man was a shadow of Christ. Christ is set before us in the New Testament as the second man and the last Adam. But Adam is set before us in Romans the fifth chapter and elsewhere as a type of him that was to come. And now we have this man given a body. He was to be on the earth. It was necessary that he should have ordinary sustenance of food. In other words, Roman, the eighth psalm says he was made not merely a little lower than the angels, 
he was made for a little lower than the angels. It looks as though the, from one point of view, we could say the purpose of God was that this man, frail though he may be, was put on probation. He was immediately faced with the possibility of disobeying. That reveals to us that while we would have to hesitate and say that a man has a free will, we must admit that man has a free choice and was responsible. You say, what's the difference? Well, a person may say, I will, nothing will happen. That's free will. God has free will. But I can choose whether I'll believe God or not, and he won't bludgeon me into believing him, but I must pay the consequences. So, man was not an automatic machine. Man was above the animal creation. He had a conscience, and he had this uh, opportunity of test. And you know the story? that he was met by a fallen, wise, spiritual enemy. And both he and his wife succumbed, for they were a pair of innocents. I don't say they were righteous or holy, for we shall read presently that they were not spiritual when they were first created. But they could not face this tremendous attack. And so we have the mortality of man stressed, and the absolute need of someone greater than ever Adam could ever be if man is to be redeemed and the purpose of God to go on according to the original plan. <coughs> now, should we give attention to some of the terms that are used in this chapter 2 with regard to man, especially those in verse 7? The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. You remember that when we were reading Proverbs, the 8th chapter, and that goes back to the beginning before God made the dust, the highest part of the dust of the ground, it goes on to say that even then, that one who is personified wisdom, who is said to have been with God in the beginning, that his delights were with the sons of men, although the sons of men couldn't have been then in existence, for that was before he made the highest part of the dust of the ground. It's a hint that long before man appeared on this earth, long before this man appeared on this earth, there had been a process going on under the guiding hand of the Creator, preparing this earth for his advent. Astronomers speculate as to whether there are inhabitants on Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and Venus, and the bulk of the evidence is there is not. Uh, they seem to be arid places, they seem to be involved in atmospheres that would choke and kill any form of life that we understand, and consequently it becomes more and more possible that out of all those teeming worlds, one was selected by God, separated by Him. Is there any likelihood from the teaching of Scripture that Christ, the Son of God, has ever visited in the same way any other planet? That is the reason why this book that certainly reveals its knowledge of the immensity of the universe, nevertheless divides it into two parts, the heavens and the earth. Now, from one point of view, that's so nonsensical that a scientist laughs at it. He uses all sorts of extraordinary figures to tell you how impossible that is. One of the figures that I read recently was that if you had a field of many acres and you were told to go into that field and find one particular grain of sand, 
that was hidden under one particular blade of grass, that would be easy in comparison with an angel being sent from God to find this earth. You see? And yet the scripture still stands, the heavens and the earth. That is because size doesn't matter to God, but purpose does. Now this man was made of the dust of the earth. I'm going to spend a little time in acquainting ourselves with this fact, because the more we gather together of the teaching of scripture, the more we shall have a basis upon which to build presently. I'm turning to the book of Job. Whether Job was obliged to consider these things and his friends, because of the condition that Job found himself in, or whether they were nearer than we are to the original events. He had no doubt with regard to the question of man being a frail person made of the dust of the earth. Chapter 4 of Job. He's contrasting him with angels. Verse 18. Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly, how much less in them that dwell in houses of clay. Well, some of us to this very day are dwelling in houses of clay, they're brick, burnt. And he says, oh, that's a picture of the very body you possess. The house in which you live and the body you possess is just made out of the soil. I suppose most of us at some time or another during our recent experience of bombardment have passed by what was once somebody's dwelling place. Just another street off from us, we heard the awful explosion and we went down presently and there wasn't anything left except a heap of dust. It was commented, there wasn't a stick of furniture. It was blown to bits. That's the house that cost so many thousand pounds and was their home. Then it's gone. And man is just as frail as that. It says here, he dwells in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. And chapter 10, 9, while we have Job open, Here's a prayer put up on that basis. Remember, I beseech thee, that thou hast made me as the clay. Wilt thou bring me into dust again? Conscious, you see. Uh, it's rather fine to see that this arises out of verse 8. Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about. Then the problem of Job, yet thou dost destroy me. But still, he's realising his frailty is associated with the dust. And once more, to put another side on the story, chapter 34, verse 15 of Job. All flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto the dust. Why is that? Verse, 20, verse 14 if he set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto the dust. Just stop for a bit and think of that turn again. It comes many times. In Genesis 3, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now, the Apostle Paul both in Philippians and in Second Timothy, 
he uses a word which is translated depart. In 2 Timothy he says, the time of my departure is at hand. Now when it says in the scriptures, you shall return unto the dust, there's no thought of a long movement there, is there? The word return means to go back to your elements. Now if I tell you what the Greek word is that's translated depart, you'll say that's exactly what God says. It's the Greek word analysis. Analuo, or analysis, in the Greek New Testament, is our English word analysis. And death, so far as the body is concerned, is its analysis. It goes back to its earth from which it was originally produced. There's no departing or going anywhere. Because there's no departing or going anywhere when the body returns to the dust. In that sense, it's an analysis. Well, then, while we're looking at this, let's look at another rather speculative wisdom book, the book of Ecclesiastes. If we have difficulty in finding it, it is just on beyond the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verse 18. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence of other beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. And then, out of that speculation, he just slips a question in. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? He seems to sense a little difference in the destiny, although they were allied together so much in this question of being taken out of the soil, returning to it again at death. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Well, that seems to be the testimony of Scripture. Now, this body taken from the soil is spoken of in the Scriptures, among other things, as being of the earth, earthy. You know what I'm quoting, and as we shall turn to the New Testament, will you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, just to face the context of these words. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. Now, a good many people think, because 1 Corinthians 15 is so often read at a funeral service, that at the funeral service, that person is being sown a natural body. No. Seed that's dead is never sown, and if it is, nothing comes of it. This is when you first come into this world. Or when I first came into this world, I don't want it to be too personal. When I came into this world, I was sown a natural body. And I already had the marks in me of that mortality which eventually must take place. Sown. Then in the resurrection, it is raised. A spiritual body. 
Now, though some people lift their eyebrows when you speak about a spiritual body, they say, oh no, a spiritual, a spirit uh, is sort of a, a spook, you know. Uh, but whatever that may be about others, no. You and I are never going to be disembodied spirits. We are going to have a body. We'll see that again specifically said when we come back to Philippians 3 again. This is there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now we've got a difficulty with regard to our English language. I can say spiritual, spirit, and then I can say spiritual. But I can't say soul and soulical. That's a pity. It's not a very good sounding word, I admit, but that's what's in front of us. The English person has to read a, a natural body and a spiritual body. Well, a spiritual body would be a natural body if that's according to God's will for that place. But, you see, we've lost it. So, he goes on to explain. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. That's the word natural. He's picked it up, you see. The first man had a soulical body. But what about the last Adam? The last Adam was made a life-giving or quickening spirit. So that we must distinguish in the scriptures between the use of soul and spirit. They are not synonymous. How be it? That was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. I'm going to ask this question without answering it. Can a person who is not spiritual die a spiritual death? You know what he said about Adam, don't you? That when God said, dying thou shalt die, that doesn't mean he died in the sense that we understand it. But that he died spiritually. Well, the scripture says he wasn't spiritual. Well, then it looks to me it's utterly impossible for a person who is not spiritual to die a spiritual death. He died a natural death. And it's defined when the Lord pronounces judgment. Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. That's not a spiritual death, that's physical. So we have it here. How be it? That was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural or soulical, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth. Earthy. Says so, doesn't it? It not merely says in passing God took to the soil and doesn't emphasize that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and conferred upon him immortality or something like that. It doesn't say that. It simply says he was of the earth earthy. And the second man, that is Christ, is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, well we have friends, we, we bear it still, all of us descended from that one man, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's no possibility of anyone avoiding that. There are statements as concerning the second coming of Christ, that those who, that remain until that time, they shall be changed. Others will be raised. So it looks as though in front of Adam there was that possibility that had he endured the test, had he proved that he was 
not vulnerable. The moment would have come when Adam would have died, he would have been translated, transfigured. And they're the very words that are used of you and me who have fallen as Adam did. We are to be translated. We are to be transfigured, as you will see in another moment or two. First of all, I'd like you to go back to the Gospel according to Matthew, just for one word, because that word is coming out again in a moment. Matthew, the 17th chapter. It says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into the high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. It was a momentary vision of the glory that's yet to come. Transfigured before them. That's Matthew 17. But Matthew 27 and 28 says that that same one, he went to Jerusalem and he went down to death and was raised from the dead and then he ascended. So there's the two. Either dead, raised, ascended in his likeness or transfigured when the moment shall come. Now let's see if that is possible by other statements. I've already referred in 1 Corinthians 15, we must all be changed. There are two other words which we ought to keep in mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image. Now, you've often heard, haven't you, of the word metamorphosis. And it is a word used by scientists when they speak of the moment when that peculiar little grub or caterpillar goes through that marvellous change. It splits and out comes a gorgeous coloured butterfly. Now, why should God have done that in this creation? There's so many different things and that one thing he has done in that insect world and that is its metamorphosis. I don't know whether you ever read the parables from nature by Mrs. Jackie. They're terribly old-fashioned. They're very long-skirted. They're all crinolines and all that business. Uh, but there's one that always struck me. It's the story of the dragonfly. And down at the bottom in the mud of a pond there were a lot of unsightly-looking grubs all in the mud. And they had a little convention. They had a meeting down there. And one of them was speaking. And he says, this is utter nonsense. He said, I've been told by some of our people that there's a new life above the top of the pond. But he said, it's impossible. But he said, I've crawled up this stalk. And the moment I put my nose out into the, what is called the outer air, I nearly died. And all the time there was one of these grubs listening, and his eyes were beginning to glow, and he couldn't stop the urge, and up he went. And when he went up there, he opened, and away he went, out into the upper atmosphere. He was a gorgeous dragonfly. Now he said, I'll go back and tell them, but as soon as he put his head under the water, he really choked. See, all the argument in the world doesn't alter the fact that there are these two spheres. And there in that insect world is the word metamorphosis. And it says, we shall all have this metamorphosis. We shall be changed. And another word uh, comes in the passage we read just now, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. 
At the end of that chapter it says, uh, verse 21, who shall change our vile body, that ought to be rendered the body of our humiliation, not vile, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, or the body of his glory, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now, I'd like you to notice that this word fashion has occurred in chapter 2, speaking of Christ. And being found in fashion as a man. In chapter 2, it's Christ coming down, and in chapter 3, it's poor wretches like you and me that he's died to save going up. So it says here, in verse 6, Christ, who being in the form of God. Well, that's a parallel to Adam being created in the likeness of the image of God. Philippians says the form of God, Colossians says the image of God. And here, he's in the form of God. And he thought it not robbery to be on equality with God. But listen to the Genesis book. Thou shalt be as God. And he yielded to it. See the difference? And then it says, And being found in fashion as a man, that's the word we've looked at in chapter 3, it goes on to say he became obedient, whereas the first Adam became disobedient. But they both led to death. But in the one case, it was a death that was the wages, and the other death that was a substitute, the one dying for the other. Well, I think it's about time then, with those few thoughts, showing how it runs through the scriptures, we come back to Genesis and face one or two other features uh, with regard to the statements made there in connection with the nature of man. I did notice in one of the passages that the word dust, which occurs here, is translated rubbish. Of course, that's only because when it's disorganized, it can be. But it's very humiliating, isn't it, to think that the bodies we have with all their marvelous processes can just be rubbish when uninhabited and unused. Uh, I don't know whether anyone has had qualms of conscience about um, cremation. Um, I think myself, personally, uh, that the scripture emphasizes burial, leave it at that. But the same word for ashes and dust, the same in the Old Testament. You can find this word dust translated ashes. And you see, if you think of a tree fallen and laying there for years, gradually going, or if you think of a bonfire setting fire to it at once, well, the effect is the same, only the time taken is different, that's all. I just leave that. I'm not going to express any further opinion. Now we're a bit back here. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Let's have a look at this question of the word living soul. We have a little bit of a disadvantage, we who read the authorised version, because we can maintain that here is the first occurrence of the word soul and consequently it belongs only to man. But most of us know that this word soul comes hundreds of times in the Old Testament and it is used of the lower order of creation 
And we haven't got to go wandering all over the Old Testament to find it. We've only got to turn the page back. Genesis 1 and verse 20. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. Now that word life is translated soul in chapter 2. So you see, it's no use saying that man is a living soul, therefore he's different from all the rest, because the very self-same book says that we use that word of these creatures that swarmed in the waters, and it's repeated again, there's no mistake, it's repeated again in verse 21, and God created great whales and every living creature that moveth. That word living creature is a living soul. So you see, we've had, a, we've had something put over our eyes to prevent us from seeing. Man does differ from all creation, but in connection with his body, he became a living soul. And the New Testament warns you that the soul is not spiritual. And if we will maintain the opposite teaching, we shall suffer for it. And once more, while we have this chapter open, in verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. So we've got them denominated. Cattle and creeping thing, beast of the earth. And it was so. Living soul. Well, let's come now a bit closer. Chapter 2, 7. It says, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The breath of life. Well now, does this mean distinction, or does it mean that's exactly what happens to all creation? Well, there's no statement in Scripture that God ever breathed into the nostrils of cattle and creeping thing. Uh, he said, let them be produced, and it was so. Here we have something personal again, and this is rather important. I think we ought to just look at this a little bit more closely. Uh, this particular word, I'll spell it for you, the breath of life, this particular word is capital N apostrophe S-H-A-M-A-H and pronounce it Nashama if you want to look it up in your concordance. It's not the ordinary word for breath. It's not the ordinary word. It's something distinct. And I find, for instance, it's used by Job. Let him speak again as he's been useful to us just now. Job 32 Verse 8. Job 32, verse 8. He says, But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Now that word inspiration is the word neshama. So you see, if the neshama gives man understanding, it's something a little distinct from the atmosphere that we breathe. I know we couldn't think if we had no oxygen in our blood. But oxygen in the blood is not thinking. And we do not think with our brain any more than your typewriter writes the letter. You write the letter by means of the typewriter. So here we have a statement that the neshama that was breathed in the nostrils of Adam gave him understanding. 
And if you say this belongs to all creation, well then, how is it that the cattle haven't got the same understanding? Or the creeping things of the earth? Well, I don't think the Neshama is used to them. Would you turn back to Joshua? Or no, first of all, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 20. I'm finding out a few of these references for you in case you want to start. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17. But of the cities of these people which the Lord thy God doth give thee for inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth, but thou shalt destroy, utterly destroy them, namely, and then it gives you the list of men. All that follows afterwards is Hittites and Amorites and Canaanites and Jebusites. They are the ones that breathe. Of course we know that cattle breathe, but they don't use the same word. And then if you'll turn to Joshua, the 8th chapter, and verse 2 and 27. Joshua, the 8th chapter, verse 2. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king, as thou didst unto Jericho and her king, only the spoil thereof, and the cattle thereof, shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves, lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. Now keep that in mind, and then refer to verse 27. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took for a prey unto themselves. You see, here we have in verse 8, Thou shalt do unto Ai and her king as thou didst unto Jericho, only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take for a prey to yourselves. And here it says, Only the cattle and the spoil of the city Israel took for a prey unto themselves according unto the word of the Lord which he commanded unto Joshua. Uh, the uh, passage ought to contain somewhere in the context I think you'll have to read the passage through the employment of those that breathe. I've just missed it for a moment temporarily. But now let's come a little bit closer. In the back of the mind of so many folks is that burning question of the immortality of the soul. Well, you say, surely you believe it. Well, somebody said to me, the reason and the proof that the soul of man is immortal is that the Bible never says so, because everybody knows it. Well, I don't know, if we're going to take that as a basis, what everybody knows will be a peculiar mixture, wouldn't it? Some time ago when I was on holiday, I was obliged to take a shelter in a porch, and a man and his wife took the shelter in the porch, and then after a little bit, we began talking. And when we began talking, we found we were both pilgrims, journeying on to glory. And then, the lady put me a pointed question. She said, uh, what do you believe about this particular thing? So I said, well, what proof text do you bring out of scripture to prove that the soul of man is immortal? And this was her proof text. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, I looked at her and I said, well, that's the rubbish sort of logic I've ever heard. The scripture says the soul shall die and that proves it's immortal. Well then I gradually got it untwisted that as death doesn't mean death but it means to be alive in separation from God 
Oh, what a twist it becomes, doesn't it, if you don't believe just what God says. But I said the scripture, the scripture actually says, don't you bother about those who can destroy the body and that's all they can do. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. Well now, if a soul's immortal, it can't be destroyed. And consequently, you ought to do something about it. But the scripture never uses it. Hundreds of times the word soul comes and almost everything is said about it except the one thing that you say is uppermost. Never once says that it's immortal. The scripture says there is one at this present moment who only hath immortality. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ for he stooped down to death. He triumphed over death. He's now at the right hand of God and he only hath immortality. And if we'd read on in 1 Corinthians 15, we should have come to the point when this mortal shall put on immortality. When? At the resurrection. Don't you see, Tyndall, the man who died because he gave to us what is practically the basis of our English Bible, the man who loved God's word and stood out and died as a martyr, he said, if you've got immortality already, what use is there of resurrection? You see, we're, we're, we're undermining our faith by swallowing Greek philosophy. I don't know whether any of you have been associated with the brethren in this meeting. But some of you listen to this will, and you know that <coughs> Darby, he wrote a book called The Hope of the church. And if you buy that book today, as you can, you'll never read one bit that I read in Hopes of the Church. Because every edition since the first edition, they've cut the paragraph out. So I went to the trouble of going to the British Museum, I got the first edition out, and I copied it out and I sent my slip showing chapter, number, verse to the person who made the inquiry from Holland. There it is that in Darby's book, where he's speaking about immortality, he said, as the philosophy of Greek Platonism came into the church, the doctrine of the resurrection waned. But that was so upsetting to the teaching of the brethren with regard to their teaching of immortality, that although they venerate the name of J.N. Darby, they cut that paragraph out. Don't you see? The scripture nowhere says that the soul is immortal. It says immortality is a conferred gift and it will be entered at resurrection. Now if you go back to Genesis 3, you'll see that there's no idea of, re of immortality in Genesis 3. See whether you think God means what he says when he says in verse 19, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. But you may say to me, oh, but then you see, that's nothing whatever to do with living forever, immortality. All right, let's look down further then. Verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat and live forever. He was cast out. God would not allow an immortal sinner. Let's, let's be glad that he won't allow it. 
There are some people who have been driven into insanity because they were sensitive enough to feel what a horrible fate is awaiting millions of men, women and children because they're immortal and they've never believed in Christ. They would not do, they would not tolerate the things that God is supposed to do to these men, women and children who've never believed Christ and they are tied hand and foot because they've already assumed that man is necessarily immortal and even God cannot do anything about it. He's got to put up with them in this universe forever and ever. That is not the teaching of scripture. The gift of God is everlasting life. If you come to Christ and challenge him, would you say that he disguised truth or would it, that he spoke plainly? He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should what? Not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. They are the alternatives. Perishing or having everlasting life. Why not keep to the language of scripture and allow the philosophy to go its way? I was down visiting my sister in Surrey and she said the minister of her congregational church, I don't think she thinks much of him anyhow, he took the subject of immortality and he had five points. One was what Buddhism taught, one was what Hinduism taught, what with two or three other isms taught, and he said, more or less, you've got to take your pick. Imagine it. A question of immortality, which is so vastly important, you just take your pick, whether you become a Buddhist or a Hindu or... No idea that the scripture definitely said that immortality was the gift of God through Christ and conferred in resurrection. And then when we come to the thought of this body, you remember in Philippians 3 that we were reading, it shall change this body of our humiliation, not vile body, this body of our humiliation with all its evidences of frailty, that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory. And can we take a little comfort when the scripture reminds us, he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Oh yes, he knows, and he has us in hand, and we are in his. Now, some of you may remember that some time ago, in the 39th volume of the Brian Expositor, I drew attention, just in passing, to the fact that it is literally true that the body of man is composed of the what we call the dust of the earth. And I rather apologised for taking up time to write this but I had quite a number of people saying, oh, could you give us some more? So I'm going to venture to repeat in this tape recording just a few lines from the 39th volume of the Briand Expositor, which is at page 18. And this is what I've written. If I can't pronounce all the words properly, I shall say them quickly and hope that they'll blame Mr. Rumsey for a faulty in uh, recording. <coughs> now it says, first of all, all the human body contains something like this. An average person of 150 pounds in weight, it would contain 90 pounds of oxygen. You practically, bulk, the most bulk, you see, oxygen and hydrogen is water, you and I, most of it. Although it not, may not be all in liquid form, there's a water of crystallization. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, chlorine, sulfur, potassium, Sodium, fluorine, magnesium, silicon, and iron. It's only half an ounce of iron and 90 pounds of oxygen. 
That's what you're made up of, Fred. That's what I'm made up of. That's the soil. Isn't it wonderful that the very few inches of the top of the soil contain every ingredient in the human body? But of course, I've, I've only touched a few. There is a bit more that uh, we have in our bodies. Only these are not ounces, but traces. Did you know that the iron will not take up oxygen, although you breathe it, and won't carry it through the blood, except in the presence of copper? So we have to have traces of these things that act like whips to drive the others on with their work. So the human body contains not only what I've just said, but it contains lead. This is where I'm going to get into trouble. I was trying to pronounce some of these words. Lead, cerium, argon, manganese, zinc, vanadium, beryllium, aluminium. And by the way, aluminium is the distinctive masculine metal. And silver, aren't you glad, is the distinctive feminine metal. Of course, we think of aluminium mainly about the old pots in the kitchen, but that isn't so. It has other uses. But there it is. Uh, aluminium, lithium, chromium, helium, iodine, cobalt, boron, neon, arsenic, bromine, scandium, nickel, lanthanum, strontium, titanium, copper, neodymium, molybdenum, silver and tin. Isn't it good we haven't got to go and go and get that lot for breakfast? An, an ordinary diet, an ordinary normal diet is providing all that material and without it you couldn't function. If one of those little items were missing, you'd be abnormal immediately. That's the consequence. Shall we not rather wonder, as we think of this, how true it is we are fearfully and wonderfully made? If God turned aside and said, let us make man in the likeness of an image, and God formed man of all these materials, and then breathed into his nostrils this particular breath of life, which gave him not only life but understanding. No wonder Job at last, as he was worrying about himself, he suddenly said, I will wait to my appointed time. Thou wilt call, and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have respect unto the work of thine hands. And I've told you before that that word respect is a most extraordinary word. It means that God turned pale. God turned pale with his anxiety that Job should be restored. He said, oh, I can see it all coming. The sufferings of this present time, they have to be endured. There's no explanation, but it isn't because God's indifferent. He will have respect unto the work of his hands. Well, here we have once more brought before us, as far as it's humanly possible in these moments, the fact that man was made like that and that there is no statement anywhere uh, that the soul is immortal. You would be interested too if you would like to go through other parts of scripture to discover how the various organs of the body are spoken of. We have a certain amount of reserve today in speaking of them and we must be watchful uh, but God has made us as we are and I remember once earning, I can't call it earning, but receiving 15 pounds as a fee because somebody mistook me for a doctor. I was sitting in the home of Dr. Moss in West Kirby and his wife was on the other side of the room. A little chap came at the door, a lady put her head round the door. She was a patient but a friend. 
She looked across at me and she says, I needn't be reserved in front of you professional men. And away she went and I couldn't get out of it till there was a pause. And then I said, you know when the psalmist said, wake up my glory? He really meant, wake up your liver. I said, you read of the weight of glory. And the word kevod in the Hebrew, weight, is the word for the weightiest organ of the body, the liver. I said, do you know you've got a glory like that? And when it speaks about your reins, where are they? Do you know? And look how many times it speaks of the bowels. Even in the New Testament, the bowels of Jesus Christ, the most sensitive part of your body when any trouble's about. God made you like that. Now, we don't parade all that, but we are an organism like that, fashioned by him. Well, now we've got many other things to find out with regard to what is man. And I've wandered a bit, and I haven't said all that might have been expected. But here we have this moment that man became a living soul. Or may we have grace to remember that it's now possible, by redeeming love, that these bodies of ours, which have been the instruments of sin, can become the instruments of righteousness. And to listen to the Apostle when he says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, as well as our spirit. Not that this body will ever be fashioned and transformed in this life. It will always have the evidence of the frailty about it, the marks of sin and death. Uh, but he's bought us. And we can say, out of a full heart, I trust we all can. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We have to turn to these passages and others like them subsequently in other studies and gradually build up before us the teaching of Scripture to answer the question, what is man? We have seen him in the image and likeness. We have seen him taken from the soil. We have seen him receiving this particular breath of life. We go on in this chapter to find him exercising that understanding by naming the animals, but that we'll have to take up when we meet together next time, God willing.